Lord, my prayer this morning is a simple one, that you would give me a heart for your word and a word for our hearts. Amen. Amen. So, years ago, and, and, and Glennie will appreciate this, I was a substitute teacher. Right out of college, there weren't a lot of music teaching jobs, and I was a substitute. Now, when you substitute for the little guys, you're busy all day long. But when you substituted at the high school, all you needed was patience and a good book to read. So I would go into the high school, and on the chalkboard, yes, back in the day, they had chalkboards, and I would write in big letters, prepare for the inevitable. And then I would sit down, and the kids would come in, and they'd look at the board, and they'd look at me, and they'd look at the board, and they'd say, what does that mean? I'd say, well, what do you think it means? Well, we have no idea, they would say. And I'd say, well, it's super easy. I got some work here that your teacher left for you. And I don't care if you do it. They're like, what? I said, I'm a substitute teacher. I'm going to read this book. If you give me grief, I'm going to send you to the office. And tomorrow I'm gone. But your teacher is coming back. And your teacher expects this work to be done. So you could pretend today like she's never coming back. Do whatever you want. Don't mess with me. We'll have a nice quiet day. I'll be a happy man. I still get paid. But when your teacher comes back, you're going to have a price to pay. And there were the other teachers like, why do the kids always work for you? I said, I don't know. <laughs> I wasn't going to give my secret away. But Jesus is preaching a, a four-part sermon. We had two parts last week. We have another part this week. And the sermon is on heaven and our relationship with the shepherd. So I want you to think of this as nesting dolls. I don't know if you, you have these at home, but they're the big one, and then inside is the next big one that goes all the way down the little one. So the first big nesting doll was the parable of the 99. And the message of the big nesting doll, the first parable, was you're lost, and the shepherd wants to find you. You open that nesting doll, and now you have the next one, and that was the parable of the lost coin. And I want you to hear this one because God says, not only are you lost, but you're valuable. You have value to me, so much value that I am going to search and search and search until I find you. Then you open up and the next nesting doll is the parable that wasn't in the reading today, but it goes between the coin and the, the, the unjust steward. And that's the parable of the prodigal son, where God says, even though I find you, even though I want you in the kingdom, you still have to make a choice. Remember, the younger brother said, Father, I've sinned against you and against God. And before he finished, the father wrapped his arm around him and took him back to the kingdom. But the older brother was left outside, and we never know what his decision was. Then comes the parable we read today. That's the nest nesting doll. But I'm going to skip that for a moment and go to the last nesting doll which is the parable that comes right after. Remember, there's four in a row. And that's the parable of poor man Lazarus. One of my favorite spirituals is poor man Lazarus. I don't know if you know that one. It goes, poor man Lazarus, sick and disabled. Dip your finger in the water, come and cool my tongue because I'm tormented in the plain. He had to eat crumbs from the rich man's table. Put your finger in the water, come and cool my tongue, because I'm tormented in the flame. You've never heard that one. Mm -mm. It's my favorite, so we'll have to add it to the list. But 
We know the story, and, and in, the, in the tradition, the rich man's name was Xerxes, and he had all the wealth on earth, and Lazarus laid at the gate of his house, and the dogs licked his sores. And when Xerxes died and went to the other place, he called out to Abraham and he said, let me go back and tell my family. Let me go back. Please let me go back. Because they need to know. And Abraham said, are you kidding me? They had the scripture, they had Moses, they had the prophets. If you didn't know, they didn't know. Even, hear this, Jesus said, even a man raising from the dead will not change their minds. So, in psychology, they talk about how do people make decisions, and there's two ways to ask for a decision. One is called the foot-in-the-door technique, and the other one is called the door-in-the-face technique. The foot-in-the-door technique, and if you've ever bought a car, they use this a lot. The more you can get the customer to say yes, little yeses. Would you like a cup of coffee? Can I get you something to drink? Do you like the blue or the red? Do you like the four-door or the two-door? Have you been to this? And they're asking you all these questions to get your yes along the way until finally they say, well, are you ready to buy the car? Foot in the door says you ask a bunch of little questions, and if you get affirmatives, when it comes time for the big question, the person's going to be more inclined to say yes. Now, the other one is called the door in the face technique, which happens to be my favorite. And if, if you know me, I like to poke the bear. The door in the face says, ask for something outrageous. And the person will go, oh, my Lord, no, never. And then you ask for what you really want. How does that work in real life? I had a cute little girl in my psychology class at the high school, and her parents had said, you are not going to the prom. And I knew the parents, and they're a very conservative family. They didn't want her going to the prom because they heard all the things that happened at the prom. And she came up to me after the lecture on persuasion, and she said, Dr. Madison, you know me. You know my parents. How would you get them to change their mind? So I thought about it for a moment, and I said, you know what? I don't think the world will end if this girl goes to the prom, and I don't think the world will end if this girl doesn't go to the prom. So I gave her some advice. I said, here's what I want you to do. I want you to go home and I want you to say, you know what, mom and dad, you are exactly right. I don't want to go to the prom. There's just too much sinning and stuff goes on at the prom and dancing and all that. She said, but all my friends are going to the shore right after. And they've already rented hotel rooms down at, the, at Wildwood. So I'd like to skip the prom, but I'd like to go to Wildwood with my friends for the weekend. She said, really? I said, sure, that's door in the face. Ask for something outrageous. And then what you really want will seem... She came back the next day and she was like dancing. <laughs> she said, oh my goodness, it worked. And they even like the boy that wants to go with me, right? So here's what happens. Jesus is giving us three foot in the door. The sheep, the coin, the prodigal. And like any good preacher, he's looking at his audience, and he's, remember, we talked about this last week, he's got two types of audience. He's got the sinners who came to hear, and he's got the Pharisees and the Sadducees who came to judge. And he realizes that they're not getting the story. So he's got to change his technique. He's not going to be nice anymore and get a whole bunch of yeses until the big question. He's going to do what we call the door-in-the-face technique. And right in the middle of this loving, caring sermon on heaven and God loving us and wanting us and valuing us, he throws in 
the unjust steward. And everybody who heard it went, what? What? Zig Ziglar says it's okay to talk to yourself. It's a good answer back. But you never want to catch yourself going, huh? That's exactly what happened. All the Pharisees and all the, the publicans and sinners went, what? And Jesus, in his mind, said, gotcha. We are so focused on what's happening here, we're forgetting to prepare for the inevitable. This is not all there is. There is a place in heaven. Um, I, I don't know, did you watch America's Got Talent this week? And the blind autistic boy won, and they said, what are you going to do with your million dollars? And he said, I'm going to buy a different colored piano for every room of my house. <laughs> and I thought to myself, he's blind. Okay, think about that. I want a different color piano for every room in my house. How is he going to know? He's blind. But I like the sentiment, right? God has all the barreling materials of the universe. He owns the cattle on a thousand hills. I have good news for you. God does not need your money. He can bless. He can take away. He has everything. Uh, one speaker I heard says, God says he goes to prepare a place for me. He's not going to let me live in a chicken shack. There's a wonderful place for us to go. But we have to make the decision. We have to have vision to see the end of the story. Prepare for the inevitable. Now what that means is, and, and, and I want you to hear what Jesus is saying. Our worldly friends who do not see the end of the story as being heaven, but see the end of the story as perhaps being retirement, right? Or blessing your children with what money you have left over. They think of the end, and I made a list here, mutual funds, annuities, IRA, Roth IRA, 403B, 401K, a better financial plan, crash-proof retirement, one-stock retirement, Wade Cook investment, Social Security, pensions, tax evasion. They think of all of these things. Now, Wade Cook was really big in the 90s. I don't know if any of you read his books. He was supposed to be a Christian man, he talked about investing and, and what he called the meter drop. That, that the way to make money for us regular people was to get little bits, little bits, little bits, and the little bits would add up. Yeah, they added up for him. He went to prison for 88 months for tax evasion. Mm. Not so sure how that whole Christian thing worked out, but I have about five of his books on my shelf because I, I was really impressed with what Wade Cook had to say about investing. But he wasn't seeing the end of the story. Now, Remember what comes next. We have the parable of the unjust steward, and then we have the parable of poor man Lazarus. God is making it very clear that as much as he loves us, as much as we love our children, there comes a time when sometimes you have to apply the board of education to the seat of learning. That there is going to be a time when justice, God's justice is going to take place. So what does that look like for us? Well, let's back up a little. Did you know that in the Bible it says that you should not charge interest? Did you know that? The Bible says that God's people should not charge interest. If I lend you a thousand bucks, I should only expect a thousand bucks back. Then the Jewish scholars mm. thought about it and they said, well, how can we make any money? They said, aha! The rule is now you may not charge interest to other Jewish people, but you can charge as much interest as you want to the Gentiles. 
So the hidden story here is when the steward called in the person and said, how many barrels of oil, jugs of oil, do you owe? And the guy said, 100. He said, cross it out and make it 50. The interest rate on oil was 100%. So all he did was take away the interest. He was actually doing the right thing for the wrong reasons. So then when he called the guy in with the wheat, wheat was 25%. The interest on wheat charged on a wheat debt was 25. Well, I guess the math wasn't that good because he only took 20. He could add five more percent. Mm. But the, the steward was actually causing his boss to not charge the interest that he wasn't supposed to be charging anyway. Uh, I'm torn by this because did you know that Jesus talked about money more than anything else? So generally the Bible has 500 verses on prayer. It has 2,500 verses on money. And in the Gospel of Matthew, Mark, and Luke, one out of every sixth verse has to do with money. Now, why is that? It's because Jesus knew that if there's one thing that was going to trip us up as believers, as Christians living in this world, was money. So I want to give you a a quick example. John Wesley, uh, I don't know if you know this, taught at Oxford University. And he made 30 pounds a year. That's English money. He made 30 pounds a year. And he, he decided he could live on 28, and he gave two pounds to the church. Later in life, he made 60 pounds a year, but he still learned to live on the 28, and he gave 32 pounds to the church. And there's one year that he was teaching that he made 1,400 pounds, but he still lived on the 28, and he gave 1,372 pounds to the church. John Wesley said, earn all you can, save all you can, and give all you can. Some of us, every time we get a raise and we, we start climbing that ladder, we, we buy more stuff. And then we have to make more money to pay for the more stuff. We buy, and we just keep, our, as our income goes up, our cost of living goes up. And we wind up saying, well, there's nothing left for the church. There's nothing left for God. Well, then, what do you do? Well, I've got to work an extra day. Well, what's the only day I have off? Well, now I've got to work on Sundays. Or maybe I have to work overtime and I miss the time with my family or my kids. And we, we wind up getting in the rat race. And the sad thing about the rat race is even if, if you win, you're still a rat. <laughs> Lily Tomlin said that, right? And Jesus says, stop racing. The race for the money is not the goal. Prepare for the inevitable. The inevitable is heaven. I'm sorry, I had to wear my contacts for the opera, and then I can't see a thing. So in in 1961, there was a Broadway musical. It's one of my favorites. Anna Maria Alberghetti was in it. It's called Carnival. And the theme of the song, uh, the theme of the show, the the big song is Love Makes the World Go Round. And Anna Maria Alberghetti recorded it. And, um, oh, shoot, the guy who sings the Christmas song, Nat King Cole. I mean, several artists. It's a beautiful song. And it says, love makes the world go round. Love makes the world go round. But the sad part is, my dad always said, well, you can't live on love. You can't eat love. And you can't pay the bills on love. And the sad part is, 
For many of us, money makes the world go round. But it's not the money that we're talking about. It's what you do with it. So, when we come to church, we have to look at at what I'd say are three things. The first one is, many churches have a plan, but they never follow through on the plan. It's what Zig Ziglar calls getting cooked in the squad. He said his mom brought out biscuits one day, and and they, they were only this thick. And he said, Mom, what happened? She said, well, they squatted to rise, and they got cooked in the squat. <laughs> well, what does that mean? That means we make great, we're going to have the best, and you could fill in the blank this year. We're ready, and then we never go. Or, I love the people who say, well, I'm going to lose weight. Okay, well, you know what? The kids are in school, and it's, it's springtime, summer. I'm going to start when school's out. Then you get to summer, and you got barbecues, and you got corn on the cob, and, pump, and all that apple pie. You say, well, you know what? I'll start the diet when school starts. But school starts, and you got Girl Scouts and Boy Scouts and piano and dance and all that. You say, oh, my goodness, I'm too busy. I'll, I'll, I'll wait until the holidays are over. And guess what? You've already gone a whole year. You know, right? You're back to New Year's resolutions where you started last year. We get cooked in the squat. We plan and plan and plan. But we're not getting anything done. The second one for me is uh, from the author Stephen Covey. I like this. He, he asked the audiences. I've seen him do it. He'd say, okay, tell the truth. Whoever crammed for a test? Oh, come on. Whoever crammed for a test? Yeah, there you go. He said, what if the farmers crammed? Right? The farmer got up in April and he said, you know what? It's a beautiful day. I don't feel like planting today. I'm going to take my family down the shore and fly kites and get some Mac and Manco's pizza. And then May came, and he said, you know what? This is the perfect time to go to Florida. And June came, he said, oh, it is too hot. I'm not going to do that work. It's too hot. And July came, and he said, you know what? We're going down to the city pool. And they hung out at the pool, and they got a tan. And then August came, and he said, well, you know, I better get to work. So he plowed the field, and he watered and watered and watered and watered and watered, and then he harvested the crop in September. And Marcel is the only one laughing, but we all know. That's ridiculous. Absolutely ridiculous. And yet, how do we as churches work sometimes? We say, well, we got a plan. Let's, let's set a date, and we're going to do this big and mighty thing. And then, and I told you in the meeting yesterday, it was part of the sermon. And we get a week before, we say, oh, my goodness, we haven't done anything yet. We're like the farmer who planted in August. And then we say, well, God will bless our work. No, there's going to come a time when God says, I don't care how much you plan. If you don't do the work, I'm not going to bless it. We have to prepare for the inevitable. And the last one is a true story from my life. When I ran the mall ministry and Christian Endeavor, Christian Endeavor and the mall ministry got too big for one man to run. They both became full-time ministries. So a friend of mine named Ken took over Christian Endeavor. And you might remember back in the 90s, there was a brand new Christian radio station called WSJI, South Jersey's Inspiration. Now it's love, but it started as WSJI, and uh, the, the station manager's name was Vern, and he needed a place. So all three of these ministries were run out of the mall ministry. It was pretty cool. So we had a youth ministry, we had a radio ministry, and we had all the mall ministry stuff. And... When you have three missionaries working in one place, and Wiki is going to nod vigorously in a moment, 
Other than praying for your community, you pray for money. Amen. Amen. <laughs> we need money. We need money. We need money. And this guy came to us and said, would you like to buy my business? The three ministries together buy my business. And it was the Christian business guide. You might remember the advertisements on the radio for the CBGBs. And we, the Christmas, yeah, anyway. We, we sat back, the three of us, and we prayed about it, and we went and looked, and he had a good business plan, and he had a good model, and he had people that were already paying to advertise. And one person, the shortest one, said, let's talk to some Christian businesses and see what they think. I mean, this guy's selling ads, but do they really work? I don't want to get involved in a product that that only looks good on paper. So we agreed that we would go out and we would ask some Christmas Christian businessmen in the area, did it work? And all three of us got the same answer. And I want you to hear this because it is a depressing answer. <laughs> the Christian businesses says, we don't want to be in there because Christians come to our business. And they are the most unfair, unjust people that we have to deal with. We would rather not have people know that we are a Christian business because they either want us to give it away for nothing or they expect so much that we can't get to our other customers. They're unfair and demanding. And that's the message that our Christians in the area were giving. So here's the good news. We did not by the Christian Business Guide. We said, we are, we are not participating in this ministry, and we took a big step away. But think about the witness. So, there's three things here. The first one is, are we making plans and getting cooked in the squat? Are we cramming at the very end and hoping that it works out? Or are we making a big plan on paper, but not really thinking about how it comes out in real life? Because a successful business, and, and I want you to hear this, that the church is a business. A successful business needs to take all of those things into consideration. We cannot share the gospel if our church closes. If we can't pay the heat, if we can't pay the electric, if we, we, we can't take care of the lawn, if we can't pay, then our business will fail. And Jesus says we need to be as shrewd as the worldly people. Because they're planning. They asked the man who runs Suzuki. Now I want you to think about this. Suzuki, when we first heard about them, made motorcycles. Then they made lawnmowers. Then they made the cute little Suzuki Samurai Jeep. Now they make all kinds of cars. They make pianos. They make violins. And they said, Mr. Suzuki, how long is your long-range plan? And all of his guys came up, and they, it was just like a cartoon. They all went, whoosh, whoosh. They whispered together and he came back and he looked right into the camera and he said, our long-range plan is 500 years. 500. Suzuki is already planning now what they're going to be doing in 500 years. Most churches don't plan past the end of the month or maybe the end of the year. They might have a calendar. We're being outplanned. We are being outthought. We are being outworked by the world. And Jesus says, if I can't trust you in little things, how can I trust you in big things? It's not about the money. It's about the inevitable. Amen. Amen.